Okay, we are reading in Matthew, in uh, uh, the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be reading from verse 1, and I'm going to reiterate and and cover a few things that I covered last week, but then I'm going to uh, uh, speak on, on still within marriage, but on a slightly different topic within marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, as we continue along the chronological life of Jesus. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. So, what we covered last week, let me summarize that quickly for you. There are only two reasons, scripturally, in the New Testament that divorce is permitted. It is never encouraged. The best thing is to have reconciliation and reunion. And, and that, is, <clears throat> that is God's highest way for us always. Always the highest way is for there to be reconciliation. It is permitted in only two instances in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of one of the reasons here. It's because of immorality. So the person who commits immorality, the spouse is permitted to divorce based on an act of adultery, for example is permitted to divorce the person who had, who, 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 who uh, committed the adultery. The adulterer is not permitted to initiate a divorce. They are not permitted. If you are going to walk in Christ, only the one who did not commit adultery could initiate the divorce. And it works both ways, the man or the woman. It is not one-sided anymore. Jesus takes this portion and the portion in Mark 10, as we covered, and made it equal between men and women. And the other reason is the reason given in 1 Corinthians 7 is that if two people are in marriage, they get married as unbelievers. While they are married, one of them becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, becomes a Christian, gives their life to the Lord. In that instance, if the other party doesn't want to live with them anymore because they are a Christian and for that reason doesn't want to live with them, the Bible says it is okay, let them go if they want, want to leave. But the best thing is that the two stay together because the Bible says that the children are sanctified because of the believing individual. And because of the believing individual, in fact, the spouse, the unbelieving spouse, is sanctified, meaning set apart, because of the believing spouse. So the best way is for them to stay together. Those are the only two permitted reasons within the New Testament for a person to have a divorce. The question came, what happens to the innocent party if the other party initiates a a divorce that is not 
permitted? What happens to the innocent party? And we dealt with that a little bit last time. Today, I want to take a different tact on this. And I want to talk about the glories of marriage and not the difficulties of marriage. And I want to also talk about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, because we're so lost in our generation. Let me just say that marriage is a beautiful thing. And Jesus even said it here. He says, from the beginning, from the beginning, he says in verse 4, he made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What would cause a person to leave their father and mother in a healthy family relationship? And Jesus said, it is this. It is Marriage. Marriage is so great a thing. It, there is some cleaving of even a family unit. One person leaves, another person leaves from that family, and they get married. He says they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus calls them one flesh. That's an interesting term. You know, he doesn't just say they are one. He says they are one flesh. When God looks at a married individual... He sees not just that individual anymore. He sees their spouse. And that's why when a married individual starts really pressing in and seeking the Lord, it brings blessing down upon their whole family. When a married individual starts rebelling against the Lord, it brings pain to their whole family. They are one flesh. Jesus speaks of them as being one flesh. What therefore, God, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The highest way is that there is no separation. Let no man separate it. We're not to have separations. Marriage is so beautiful a thing. This is why we want to get it right. We want to get it right. And the way we get it right is we bring in third parties. We bring in people that we value to speak into our lives. And to say, you know, I, I just keep thinking about this individual and they're always on my heart. What do I do? What do you say? You know, could this individual be right for me? And that's exactly what I did. In, in, this, in the sense that I always used to pray when I was an undergraduate and I was a believer. I said, Lord, you bring, I pray thee, the right woman in my life. Bring the right person in my life. Because I didn't want to get this thing wrong. I mean, I'm amazed that some people just on their own. I know who's good for me. How do you know? I don't know myself. I really don't. I mean, I know myself in that I'm really wicked. But I don't know what's right for me. I want God knows other individuals. I said, I used to pray, Lord, bring the right person in my life. And I prayed this all the time. I would say almost every day. I prayed this prayer, Lord, let me marry the right person. Bring the right person in my life. When Shireen came to the U.S., her dad introduced us. And then as I watched her in church over the next several weeks, I noticed she was really a wonderful person. I mean, she was beautiful outside and beautiful, beautiful at heart. I mean, just amazing in both respects. And I couldn't stop thinking about her. I mean, I thought about her all the time. I go to read the Bible and I'm thinking about Shireen. I don't know if this has ever happened to you that you start thinking about another person. Just day and night, I was thinking about this girl and I was saying, Lord, this isn't right. I just want to focus in and, you know, do chemistry. I mean, Shireen, I mean, everything. She was just there. And I went and I shared with the pastor of our church and I said, you know, I, I, I keep, keep thinking of this girl, Shireen, and, and, uh, 
And he looked at me and I, you know, and I could see, you know, he's just watching me as I'm, I'm speaking. And he said to me, do you know where her father is this week? I said, no, I, I, I knew her father. I knew her, I knew her whole family before I knew her. I knew her oldest brother for a few years. Then her father came, her mother came. I knew them because she was just finishing up college in a British school. She was finishing up college. So she was the last of her whole family to come. And, and uh, her, her brother had been here since the 60s studying, and so I, I knew him for, for, for a much longer time period. And then, and then uh, I said, I have no idea where her father is. He said, oh, he's gone to New York City to find a husband for Shireen. Because in that culture, the parents identify some people, and they would bring the picture and tell the daughters about the different individuals that are open to marrying her. You know, they'd go. To, she, he was going to visit these these other Pakistani homes in New York, and that's the culture. It's not it's not bad. It's not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily good. It's a whole lot more scriptural than what we do here. And I said, I had no idea. I said, there's no chance for me then. I mean, I didn't. I don't. I don't fit that bill. He said, we'll pray. We'll pray. And the and the pastor was an Indian, so he knew their culture very well. Well, he came back with seven proposals, and uh, I only learned about this afterward. <clears throat> But I had the pastor on my side. <laughs> that is a terrific person to have on your side. <clears throat> I was very involved with the church, very involved in the discipleship program in that church. And, and, uh, um, and I, I was involved in evangelism, every aspect, setting things up, doing everything, attending all sorts of stuff. And so this pastor and I were very close and he spoke to her family on my behalf. And I'll tell you, this is a great thing to have, someone speaking on your behalf. And, and I learned from Shireen subsequently, she was like, I'm never going to marry an American. There's no way. And, and, um, and I didn't know that this was really leading to marriage. All I knew is I couldn't get my mind off this girl, but I wanted to do it right. So the pastor said, well, let's just pray for six months and seek the will of God. And I was totally content with that. You say, you've got to wait six months? Well, six months for me is nothing. Remember, you, remember you, you, you had uh, uh, Jacob. He worked, <clears throat> he worked for seven years for the woman he wanted and then got mixed up and had to work another seven years. <clears throat> and it even says of that, for him it was but a moment, knowing that what waited at the, after the end of these time periods Six months was not a lot for me because I wanted to get it right. I really wanted to get it right. And the only time I saw Shireen during this first six-month period was I saw her at church. Once in a while, her family would invite me over for a picnic or something, or I'd see her at, at, at the prayer meetings on Friday nights or something. <clears throat> but we weren't dating. We weren't going out together. <clears throat> and so we just prayed for six months. And I told the leadership of the church, I said, if all the leadership and her parents are not at peace with this, that this is the will of God, I don't want it. After six months, we all got together. I got together. <clears throat> Shireen wasn't there. I got together with the leadership of the church and the associate pastor, who was a good friend of mine, and he was actually the pastor over the discipleship house that I was in there in my last two years of college. He didn't have that much peace with it. And you say, well, why didn't he have peace with it? Well, I don't know everything, but he felt that Shireen wasn't, wasn't where I was in my walk with the Lord. That she was a nice, fine young lady, but she wasn't where I was. 
So I said, you know, I won't marry. And the pastor said, either he's hearing from God or we're hearing from God. Let's pray another six months. And I was okay with that. You think that, oh, I'm just wrenching. I'm not. Because I want to get this thing right. During that second six-month period, her family would occasionally invite me over. And if I went out with her, we went out. I was with with her brother and her sister-in-law. We were always chaperoned as a couple. It was during that second six-month period, about five months into that, that the associate pastor came to me. He says, I have peace. I've come to know her better. I have peace with this. And so it was after a year period that we got engaged. And that was just before I had to leave for my first year of graduate school. So we got engaged and the next, the next week I'm gone. And, uh, and we just used the phone a lot. I mean, it, it works. And that was back in the days where you make a phone call, a long distance phone call, you pay a lot of money. And there was, there was only AT&T. There were no other phone companies. And so there was a monopoly. It just, and, and when you said AT&T, it was like, oh boy, you got to deal with a phone company. In fact, Woody Allen said, I didn't know Hitler was, was, was a Nazi. I thought he was with the phone company. <clears throat> they had such a bad reputation. I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember AT&T and the monopoly they had and the prices you spent on, on calling people long distance. It was just huge. And we wrote a lot of letters. I mean, there was no email. We actually wrote letters and you know, I would get her letter, and I would smell it, and, and, I, <laughs> and uh, we have not had total peace in our marriage, by any means. I mean, we've had our troubles, we come from two totally different cultures, we view family differently, but we've never disagreed on our faith, we've never disagreed on how we're going to raise our children. We've never gotten in a fight and skipped church. I mean, we were going to go to church. If we were arguing, we were still going to church. And we were sitting next to each other in church. I mean, we were going to be there. But we were going to make things work. Because I never, ever doubted, have I married the wrong person? Many people, many married people will wonder, oh, I think I married the wrong person. It happens all the time. In fact, I know one woman who says that she woke up on her wedding night and sat up in bed and turned to her new husband and she said, what if I married the wrong person? And he looked at her and he said, well, then you got lucky. (laughs) And she regrets ever saying that to him. They they were married for a very long time and he, he passed away just a few years ago, but they were married for like 35 years together. But... What I'm saying is I never doubted that I married, that I had married the correct person because I had all this other substantiation behind it. You see what I mean? It wasn't just these hormones, these molecules in my body, these small molecules that were getting, getting hold of my mind because they will talk to you. You will think that they are God's voice. You really will. You'll think that they're God's voice and you will, you'll do all sorts of things. But you can get this right when you bring in a third party. Now, what happens is you start going with an individual and you say, well, we'll date around for a while and we'll assess this thing. And little by little, you get more and more involved with that individual. It gets really hard to split that up. And so even when you see all these deficiencies that, you, that are really suspect and you think, well, maybe it's better we break up. It's hard to break up now because you become so involved. If that relationship becomes physical, it is really hard to break up because it was never meant to be that way. 
You've gone against the order of what God has for you. It was never meant to be that way. To me, marriage is the best invention in the world. I would never want to be unmarried. I love being married. I love coming home, having my wife there, and if I come home and Shireen's not there, it's like, where is she? I mean, this is just, this is just not right. I mean, she left dinner on the table for me. You mean I gotta, I gotta kind of put it on my own plate? I mean, what is this? This is too hard. I just like having her next to me. I just want her to be there. And I just don't like being without her. Marriage is such a beautiful thing. He says the two become one flesh. I know many of you have come from broken homes. Let me tell you something. It was never meant to be that way. Marriage is a glorious thing. And you can get this right if you will submit it to God. If you go to a bar and you find a girl in a bar, you will be marrying a barmaid. And you will get a girl that likes to frequent bars. You meet somebody in church, it can be very different. I used to see her in prayer meetings, and this is what got me really excited. On Friday nights, we had Friday night prayer meetings. All the students on campus were out doing Friday night things. Not our church. We met right by campus, and we were on our knees praying. Praying for the campus Friday night. Shireen was there with her family. I mean, what a family. And remember, marriage isn't just two individuals. You're bringing families together. It's good to have a family that you really enjoy. And I loved being with her family too. And so, even though we went through difficulties, we were going to work it out. We've gone to counseling. You say, you went to counseling? Yes. We went to counseling many times. And generally, what would happen is we'd go in there and I'd sit down and I'd say, look, we're having this disagreement Whatever you tell me, I will do. And the, and the counselors were just shocked. I said, whatever you tell me, I will do. And they'd always say, if you're like that, we can take care of you very quickly. And generally, the counseling sessions never went more than six sessions. Never. Because they say, you guys are done. And usually what happened is after the third session, they stopped charging us. Because they felt that we were giving them as much as they were getting from us and they wanted to learn how we were doing this. And so they often became family friends after that as well. And so they did come over and, and, and uh, uh, so we build relationships in that way. So sometimes you need mediation. Sometimes you get in. And, and I loved going to women counselors because it was really great that I could have this woman advocate agreeing with me on something. And so our life is so... so because if, if, you're with, if I was with a man counselor, Shireen could get sometimes a little bit defensive. Here, these two guys, you know, coming at me. But with a woman counselor, I mean, I, I, I just, I could get this advocate. It is good to have this. It is good to get your marriage tuned up. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not going to, and, and I am glad in sharing of my weaknesses. Because when I share of my weaknesses, what it does is it gives people hope. It gives people hope for what they can have. <clears throat> what happens is that sometimes people are so wounded, so wounded that they don't know how to, how to really deal with things. And so what I want to do is I want to read to you some things from this, this portion that I have on my internet site, which is called Scriptural Sexual Ethics. And what happens is, as men, we don't know what it means to be a man. 
I remember teaching a Bible study to the Houston Astros. And, um, uh, and by the way, that was the year that they went to the, the, uh, uh, they went to the World Series. But because they got so busy with the World Series, they stopped having Bible study before the series started. And for those of you who remember what happened to the Houston Astros in the World Series, uh, you might see the importance of, of weekly Bible studies. Um, but in any case, I said, my, my son has a picture of you men up on his wall. How many of you feel that you've really attained the picture of manhood? Nobody could, do, nobody could raise their hand. And I said, I know what you're talking about. So let me deal with manhood. If we have time, we'll deal with womanhood. If not, we'll deal with womanhood next week. So every man struggles with what it means to be a man. Every man does. What does it mean to be a man? We are starved for some man who has made the journey to tell us what it means to be a man. Jesus has made this journey. And you can only likewise make it by the cross. There's no other way. You can't get to Easter without going through Good Friday. You have to go through the cross to become a man. Is manhood based on physical appearance? It can't be. It can't be based on physical appearance because in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, it describes the appearance of the Messiah. It describes the appearance of the Messiah. And it says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. There was nothing physically within Jesus that was attractive to other people. How do we know? The Bible tells us many things we learn about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And it spoke prophetically. It said He had no appearance that we should look upon. Nothing stately about Him. Some Messianic scholars say, Jesus was probably five foot four with crooked teeth. And I know that messes up what you might have in your mind for the picture of Jesus. But there was nothing in him that was attractive to people physically. Nothing. So if you're not totally content with what you look like as a man, welcome to the life of Jesus. All right? Nobody is totally content with what they look like. But Jesus who went before us, is the model of a man. And there was nothing there physical. It says he was despised and forsaken of men and like one from whom men hide their face. So Jesus was like one from whom people would go, they'd hide their face. If you argue that he was handsome, why did not the scriptures say that? As it did with other handsome men. It says David was handsome. It says David's son Absalom was handsome, for example. It says Tamar and Abigail were pretty. It says they were beautiful, very beautiful. The Bible only mentions looks, physical looks, on the extremes. It said, for example, of Iglon and Eli. It says that they were fat. When they were on the extremes, it made comments about them. But for Jesus... The only comment it makes is he was unattractive. There was nothing that drew us to him. It makes reference to physical appearance on the extremes. And the only physical appearance that we have of reference to Jesus is there was nothing in him physically that drew men to him. He was, and then, when he went out for the scourging, Pilate sent him out for the scourging. He came back. He was so shredded in the end of Isaiah 52. It speaks about what the Messiah looked like after his scourging. And it says 
of Jesus after his scourging of the Messiah, it says that he was so deformed he didn't even have any more the appearance of a man. The man's body was so utterly shredded. In fact, it goes on to say no one has ever gone through the shredding that he went through. The end of Isaiah 52, it describes the, 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 the scourging that Jesus went through. And it was when he came out from that scourging, totally disfigured because of being shredded with these whips that have bone going through them and rip the skin as it hooks and rips, hooks and rips. Jews could only administer 40 lashes by the law. That's why Paul says, several times I received 40 lashes save one, meaning 39 lashes, because the Jews never wanted to violate the law of Moses. They wouldn't even go to the full 40 permitted. They'd stop at 39. But Jesus was not beaten by the Jews. He was beaten by the Romans. The Romans had no such restriction. He came back so shredded, Pilate looked at him and he said, Behold the man! That was the proclamation of Jesus. Behold the man. This is the image of manhood. I give myself totally for you. Totally for the other. This is the image of God's love. This is the image of manhood. You want to know what it is to be a man? What it is to be a man is, my thoughts, my actions, my words are totally in your best interest. And if they are not, it is not the love of God. Manhood is this. It is total expression that for your good, my words, my thoughts, my actions are for your good, for the other's good. That is the image of a man. You want to know what it is to be a man? That's the image. Jesus paints for us the image of a man. The image is total self-donation for the other. That is the image for a husband. Because so many young people go into marriage not knowing what manhood is. Thinking that manhood is what I thought it was before I was a believer. I thought I had to be six foot four, really handsome, with a woman hanging on each arm and the life of the party. That's the image of a man. But the scriptures say it's very different. The image of a man is this. Total self-donation for the other. Women, this is what you want in a husband. One who gives himself totally for you. Scripturally, what does it mean to be a man? I would prefer to be crucified than to violate your dignity or use you for my own lustful gain. Lust is grabbing something that is not mine for myself. I would rather be crucified than to use you for my own lustful gain. That's what the image of a man is. The battle is between love, another's best interest, and lust, our own self-interest. Man, that's where the battle is. Unless you know what it is to be crucified for the one you love, rather than to ever use her for your own lustful fulfillment, you will not know what it is to be a man. Even if a woman is confused with her own dignity, you show her dignity. Maybe you recognize that lust is all you have, I don't condemn you. I've been there. But the Bible speaks for us a very different way. And salvation is not a sham. There is deliverance from lust. There is deliverance. 
So if you think that that's all you have, welcome to the world of the modern man. But I'm introducing to you the man Jesus. There is a better way and there is victory over it. Can you look her in the eyes and say, I would rather be crucified than to use you for my own selfish gain? Can you say that to your spouse, to your girlfriend, to your fiancé? In the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, it says, You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Look at how the man views her. He views her first as like a sister. What do you do with your sister? You protect her. You protect your sister. You watch over her. You care for her. You must first view her as a sister. I am here for your protection. That's how he viewed her. This is the meaning of manhood. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, when it was speaking about the birth of Jesus, it says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph was engaged to Mary. They hadn't yet been together, meaning they hadn't yet unified in, 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 uh, they hadn't yet formalized the marriage and been to bed together. And Mary is found to be with child. Joseph is not thinking, oh, immaculate conception. He is thinking exactly what anyone would think. This woman has been sleeping around with somebody. He found her to be with child. Based on the law in Israel, she should have been stoned to death for having done this. She was betrothed to Joseph. But look what it says. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He was going to have her sent away secretly so she could go and have that baby without the human disgrace, without the social disgrace. He cared that much for her. After she, for all he knew, was spitting in his face by getting pregnant with another man, it says, it says he being a righteous man did not want her disgraced. Righteousness protects the other individual. Right, righteousness protects the other individual. This is why, for example, in Proverbs Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, it says, And a person's wisdom yields patience. It is one's glory to overlook an offense. The overlooking of an offense is one's glory. So rather than taking this woman and sticking her face in this offense, his desire was to protect this woman. How magnificent a model Joseph is. And it says of him, he is a righteous man. There's a deception that, 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 that uh, God has made the human body in it and, and, uh, um, and it must be for, for men's lustful gain. It is not there for that. There is something so much greater than that. God has something much greater than that. 
It says in Genesis 2.25, they were naked and unashamed. You will never, never experience this degree of innocence outside the bonds of marriage. Never. You will always know that what you are doing is wrong. Outside the bonds of marriage, you cannot enjoy this level of innocence that she was, they were naked and unashamed. This will only come in God's way in marriage. Outside of that, you will always know that what you are doing is wrong. And this is dishonor to the woman. Absolute dishonor because it is not in her best interest. It is only in my best interest when you do this to a woman. The major responsibility is on the man. He must look out for this. You say, well, look, look at the way these women dress. You know, they just draw me into it. It's not the dress. Women should be careful how they clothe themselves. But remember, a man has the mental capacity, and I know this personally, the mental capacity to take a woman, even in a head covering, and undress her in a nanosecond in his mind. He has that mental capacity to do that. And this is part of the struggle of manhood. I have been there, I know. And there is a better way. The main obligation is on the man. And you pray this prayer. Here's the prescription for redemption. You want to be redeemed as a man? Here's the prayer you pray. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. That woman has been made in the image of God by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain. And take and by that power, please untwist in me that which sin has twisted. You pray a prayer like that. You call upon God and go figure God will answer. And you will start viewing women differently. You see a beautiful woman, pray that prayer. Lord, take that which is twisted in me and untwist it. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me view her as a child of God. Made in the image of God. She is made in the very image of God. You do that and God begins to untwist your mind. That is the action plan for men. Next week we will cover the action plan for women. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word that you have for us a better way. Father, I pray for these young people that you would grant them good spouses in your own time according to your own choosing and that they could experience the joys in their marriage that I have in mine. Father, I pray for them that they could experience the oneness, the unity, the fellowship the experience of joy together, of a life lived together in their marriages that Shireen and I have in our marriage. Father, I pray that for them. And I pray Your blessing and Your grace be upon their lives. That they would not jump into this quickly, but they would take advice and go into this prayerfully. And Father, I pray for the men in this class that You would cause them to walk in the image of a man that Jesus has laid down for them. That they would learn to pray this prayer of redemption so that they could have power over pornography and power over lust and they could see that there is something so much better 
Father, I pray for your grace to be upon them. Have mercy on these young people, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.